Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by Compliance Institute. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series, giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. President of the Compliance Institute and a compliance professional for over 20 years, and it is a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. We are at an interesting juncture in the AML landscape. We have become accustomed to dealing with a series of EU directives and to dealing with a local regulator, but that is all about to change with the introduction of a new EU AML regulation and the creation of an EU AML regulator. AML governance within organizations has also never been as hot a topic as it is now. To discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to have with me today Niall Esler, partner and head of the regulatory group in Walkers Ireland, and Shane Martin, also a partner in the regulatory group in Walkers. Niall specializes in Irish and EU financial services regulation. His practice includes advising in relation to the regulatory perimeter, licensing and compliance with prudential and conduct of business requirements. Niall has been particularly active in advising financial services groups on the establishment of regulatory entities in Ireland, with a focus on fintech, payments, banking and investment services, as well as ongoing compliance. Shane has significant experience in regulatory risk and compliance in financial services across the banking, asset management, payment services, fintech and credit union sectors. Drawing on his prior experience as a regulator and industry representative, Shane provides practical advice on all regulatory compliance matters with particular expertise in financial crime and data privacy. Prior to joining Walkers, Shane worked for a number of years for the Central Bank of Ireland in the AML division and played a key role in managing the AML inspection team and in resulting enforcement cases. Shane is a past chair of the AML Private Sector Consultative Forum and is also a member of the Institute's Financial Crime Working Group. Welcome, Niall and Shane, to this podcast on AML. Thank you for talking to me today. Thanks, Cathy, for, for the intro and, and thanks to the Compliance Institute for inviting us on to the podcast today to share our thoughts on, on AML developments. And as you said, a very interesting time. OK, Shane and Niall, let's start with the here and now. And we can come back later to the, the upcoming developments. But what are the main issues that tend to come up when your clients are engaging with the central bank? Yes. So, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say AML has evolved a lot over the last 10 to 15 years. But but now we're at a point where there's another leap on the horizon in terms of the EU AML authority being established. And also we'll, we'll soon have another EU directive and a regulation to deal with. And we'll, we'll speak about that a little bit later, but in terms of, of the present day, there's two main scenarios where our clients engage with the CBI on, on AML issues. The first is when they're seeking authorization. So that might be as a bank, an investment firm, a payment institution, crowdfunding platform, or, or any other form of regulated financial services provider. The second scenario then is when they're already authorized, but they're subject to an inspection. That could be a full scope inspection, a thematic inspection, or, or it might be just completing a, a risk evaluation questionnaire. But where we tend to see most focus and most queries from the CBI across, across both scenarios is in relation to business risk, risk assessments, governance, and outsourcing. And if you think about it, th these are understandably areas of focus for the CBI, because any firm that's put proper thought into its business risk assessment 
has a good governance model and is managing outsourcing proactively should be in pretty good shape then as regards meeting their, their legal and regulatory obligations in this space. There's also a learning and awareness piece where both the firm and the central bank are trying to achieve a shared understanding of the firm's business and how that might impact money laundering, terrorist financing and sanctions risks. So that process of achieving that shared understanding, I think it's fair to say it's probably taking longer in recent years than it would have you know, 10, 10 years ago or so. And that's because the business models of firms are becoming less vanilla and more, more innovative. Thanks, Shane. Um, yeah, so a lot of change both in the regulator and, and in industry, across industry. Shane, in terms of that focus on governance, um, how are firms navigating it? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think most firms would probably consider that they allocate sufficient people to AML, taking into account the nature, scale and complexity of their business. And uh, they would also, I'm sure, believe that their boards recognize AML as a priority issue and that the boards are adequately engaged on it. But over the last 18 months, some additional complexity has crept in, predominantly in, in light of three key developments. So the first, if you go back to July 2021, you had the publication of the proposal for a new EU AML regulation, which we've, we've mentioned. The proposal had a section and uh, still has a section in there on AML compliance functions, and it referenced both the role of a compliance manager and a compliance officer, albeit while acknowledging that for some smaller firms, that those two roles could be performed by the same person. Then in June 2022, the European Banking Authority published guidelines in relation to compliance management and the role and responsibilities of the AML compliance officer. From speaking to various AML professionals recently, there's a sense that these guidelines may have been prepared from a civil law perspective predominantly. The guidelines reference the role of the management body of a firm in its supervisory function and the role of the management body in a firm in its management function. Um, and also identifying a member of the management body who will be responsible for AML. If you translate that across to a common law system, you're essentially talking about the role of the board and having a senior sponsor. So someone who's going to take responsibility and ownership for AML compliance at a senior level, at a board level. But that senior sponsor won't necessarily be involved in, in day-to-day implementation. The guidelines do also deal with the more day-to-day role, which is the AML compliance officer role. So overall, the content of the guidelines is, is reasonably aligned with the content of the proposed regulation, but the guidelines are not an easy read. They run to 54 pages, um, and as I said, they have that sort of civil law flavor. But the key point really in relation to the guidelines is that the CBI has made it known that they expect firms to have considered the guidelines and assessed how to address them in relation to their business. So. Um, that, that's a really key thing for people to be aware of. The other point to note is that the guidelines do recognise that not all firms will need to have both the compliance officer and that se- separate senior sponsor. So there is a nature scale and complexity overlay that, that firms can take into account. The last significant development in this space is the retirement of the old PCF 15 role last April and the introduction of a new PCF 52 role. As a reminder for listeners, PCF 15 was the head of compliance with responsibility for AML role, and the PCF 52 role is titled head of AML CFT. So its introduction as a standalone role is indicative of the fact that the CBI consider AML to be an important area in its own right. This is an important role 
as opposed to what, what might have been considered a bit, of a bit of a tag on in the past to the head of compliance role. So some people might ask, where does this all leave the most commonly referenced role in AML terms in Ireland, which is the MLRO, the Money Laundering Reporting Officer? Well, in, in their AML guidelines, the CBI note that a customer practice has evolved in Ireland over the years of using the term MLRO, notwithstanding that it isn't defined in Irish legislation. And they go on to say the firms may, depending on nature, scale, complexity, structure their internal AML governance framework so that the person who's been designated the MLRO may also be the person appointed as the AML compliance officer. So I suppose if you just sort of distill all of that down, and, and, and again, there's no getting away from the fact that there is a bit of complexity now, or certainly a lot more than there was you know, a few years ago. If you take um, an example of a typical mid-sized firm, you'll have the board taking overall responsibility in terms of fulfilling that AML oversight function. Then you, that mid-sized firm will probably have a director nominated to take responsibility as the senior sponsor for AML. And then one or maybe two or three people fulfilling the AML compliance officer MLRO role and head of AML. Um, and you know, that might be one all the one person, it could be two, it could be three. But but these are the decisions the firms will have to make ultimately based on nature, scale, and complexity. Thanks, Shane. And of course, firms will have to document their deliberations on those key considerations and their conclusions as well, you know, to be able to evidence their consideration of, of, of those issues. Clearly, the stakes are getting higher for anyone in an AML role, um, you know, with the backdrop of, you know, what has happened in the last number of weeks with with uh, SEER. Um, so could you just expand on that a little bit for our listeners? Thanks, Cathy. It's uh, Niall here. And I think there are there are three key aspects um, to this to this question. First, as you say, the general individual accountability developments over the last number of weeks. Secondly, the specific CBI focus on roles in an anti-money laundering context. Shane has has discussed that that focus already. And thirdly, I think the opportunities that some of that specific focus and the broader accountability agenda brings for those within the organization in, in, in addressing anti-money laundering. So firstly, looking at individual accountability more broadly, it's a highly topical issue with the enactment of the Central Bank Individual Accountability Framework Act on the 9th of March and the publication of the central bank's consultation on that new framework uh, published on the 13th of March. As we know, the new framework will provide for increased focus on individual roles and responsibilities, but also enhanced conduct and, and accountability. The framework includes the Senior Executive Accountability Regime, or SEER, coming with it uh, an allocation of responsibilities for PCS in certain organizations and a duty of responsibility for those in pre-approval control functions for areas where they hold responsibility. Separately, uh, and I think importantly, because it applies across the industry, are the conduct standards that are being introduced for firms, but also those conduct standards for persons holding controlled functions and holding pre-approval controlled functions. So there's certainly more focus with anyone with senior responsibilities across the board in organizations. There's more focus on conduct and potentially the application of accountability through enforcement, which is provided for in the regime. So that applies across the board and is not specific to anti-money laundering. But as Shane has noted, the central bank has brought in the new PCF dedicated solely to anti-money laundering, um, which is the head of anti-money laundering uh, compliance. Clearly, the central bank is focused on the importance of this role within the organization. It warrants a standalone PCF. 
you'd expect more uh, scrutiny there. In a practical sense, this means that the standalone PCF can be subject to a central bank fitness and probity interview, for example, um, but also that the firm will be focusing its fitness and probity due diligence on that individual in respect of that standalone PCF and not just the broader compliance role as it would have been previously. So in short, the individual accountability framework does heighten the accountability aspect for those with responsibilities across the board and raises the stakes for those individuals, including the new AML PCF and any other controlled functions involved in the AML function. But we actually think that the elevation of the head of function to a standalone PCF should offer those individuals with AML roles an opportunity to benefit from a greater standing within the organization and therefore be in a better place to ultimately ensure adequate attention, adequate resources, and bring these issues to the top table in relation to anti-money laundering compliance. Finally, then, I think the conduct standards set aside from the, from the new PCF, they should develop a better culture generally, a better compliance culture, better focus on these issues. So I think while there has been a raising of the stakes, no doubt, across the board, I think there's an opportunity there as well for those in AML roles. Thanks, Niall. And uh, Shane mentioned outsourcing earlier. What are the challenges for firms when outsourcing elements of their AML functions? Thanks, Cathy. So uh, outsourcing provides a number of benefits in the anti-money laundering space, and we've seen that particularly with sophisticated new solutions being, being made available. Um, however, there are challenges, and we see firms looking at a number of these. Um, so firstly, I think understanding what the new provider is actually going to do for the firm and how it's going to do it, I think that's a key focus. Secondly, the ability of the firm to influence change within the service provider where, where that's required. And then ongoing items like ensuring that the sufficiency of management information is there to allow uh, oversight of the of the arrangement. So looking first at the the understanding of the service provider, you know, as I say, a, a lot of the, the services that are being provided and this and the solutions offered are increasingly sophisticated, increasingly complex. This can bring an advantage in terms of the, the customer experience through customer due diligence and so on. But there can be a, a real challenge for firms in understanding what methods are actually employed by the service provider for, say, customer due diligence, what the sources being used are, the veracity of those sources, how often they're being updated, and whether there are any intricacies in terms of the service provider's methods of operation that are not aligned to how the firm views its own risk assessment or views its own local requirements. This is a regulatory expectation that you understand what the service provider is actually doing for you, but I think it's also heightened by the recent guidelines published by the European Banking Authority on remote customer onboarding, which also look at this issue and bring it further up the agenda. So we expect firms to, to pay more focus at a risk assessment or a due diligence phase whenever they're onboarding service providers in relation to understanding exactly how the service is being provided and how it aligns with their um, organization and the risks that it faces. I think other challenges, as I mentioned, the influence piece. So where changes are required to the methodology as the service is being provided during the course of the relationship, Firms need to think about whether they can actually influence change or whether it's quite a rigid service. This may be more challenging for smaller firms. Um, and, you know, we can see it come into focus in things like business continuity planning and so on. And then on an ongoing basis, as I say, the sufficiency of management information that's that's being received from, from the service provider 
and whether that is bespoke, whether it matches the the actual needs of of the organization in Ireland that's outsourcing. And then I think finally one area that I that I would mention, um, which is access and audit rights. They're obviously an important protection for firms, but we do see that there's still pushback during contractual negotiations in terms of incorporating those rights into uh, SLAs and so on, despite the fact that for a number of years, this, this has been a clear requirement for uh, regulated firms. Thanks, Niall. And um, th this is an area where there's intersection between outsourcing uh, regulation and, and AML regulation. Um, and I suppose, but given the cycle that we're about to enter into with, with new regulation coming in, even though maybe more, maybe perhaps more governance focused, uh, an ability to absorb new regulation would also be key in choosing a, an outsourced service provider. So in terms of how businesses are approaching business risk assessments, how has that evolved in recent years? Yes, Scotty. So, I mean, fundamentally, you, you could argue that not much has changed over the years in terms of where firms are, are ultimately trying to get to, which is an assessment of their products and services, their customers, geographies and distribution channels from, from an inherent and residual risk perspective. However, what has changed is that firms have an, a substantially increased volume of material to consider when looking at the different risk factors. So, there are risk factors specified in the schedules to the Criminal Justice Act 2010. There's the National Risk Assessment for Ireland. There's the EU Supranational Risk Assessment that the European Commission publishes. There's the EBA guidelines and risk factors. Any guidance on risk that central bank publish, information from international standard setting bodies such as the FATF, and so on and so on. So that's a lot to digest and consider, albeit that not all of it is, is going to be relevant for all types of firm. It'll depend on the sector the firm operates in and the types of products and services it provides. I think the process of, so you've, you've got a lot more information to consider. And I think the process of preparing a business risk assessment has also become more granular. So, you know, if you take customer risk as an example, you don't just look at a, a type of customer and assign a risk you know, label. You have to consider other elements such as you know their, their business or professional activities, their reputation, their nature and, and behavior, um, and all of those elements need to be considered. So within each risk factor, there are sub risk factors. And in, in interactions with the CBI, we've also seen more of a focus on some additional risk factors such as outsourcing risk, which we've just discussed, financial sanctions risk, and more of a focus on delineating between the measures that are taken to assess and manage money laundering risk and also the measures that are taken to assess and manage terrorist financing risk instead of just bundling those two those two areas together, which may have been the I suppose the the tendency in the past. So um that's another significant change. There's also an expectation that risk assessment should be based on qualitative and quantitative data. So it's it's you know it's not just a chin stroking exercise. The assessment should be backed up with evidence, with data where, where that's available. And we've seen the, the CBI push firms pretty hard in terms of making their assessments as meaningful as possible, as bespoke as possible. And, and that can be quite a challenging process, particularly when firms are looking ahead in the context of, of a license application. They don't have years of, of data and trends and customer interactions to reflect on. Uh, and, and so getting to that sort of really granular 
bespoke place is a little more challenging. But certainly, you know, we would see upside in, in terms of investing time in assessing risk in that it should ensure then that your policies, procedures and controls are more fine-tuned and more appropriate to the business. It should, it should also help with directing resources to the right places. So that might be hiring more people into a team. It might be investing in a new piece of, of tech. Um, ultimately, those decisions should be more science-based because you, we've got a, a business risk assessment to back it up and to have those discussions with the board if you're looking for greater resources and, and support. Thanks, Shane. So ever more complexity in, in business risk assessments then. Niall, moving on to some of the sectors that have been brought into the tent more recently. What has been the experience there? Could you describe it for our listeners? Yes, thanks. Um, well, the most recent additions to the Criminal Justice Act in terms of the list of designated persons includes the addition of virtual asset service providers. And virtual asset service providers are VASPs were added to the list of designated persons in April 2021. Virtual asset service providers are persons who, by way of business for another, carry out certain, certain services. So that's exchange of virtual assets um, for fiat or exchange of virtual assets for other types of virtual assets, transfers of those assets, providing a custodian wallet service, or participating in or providing financial services related to an issuance of virtual assets. Um, but not only are they now designated persons, there has been an obligation since April 2021 to register with the central bank um, for anti-money laundering purposes. To date, only five firms have been registered with the central bank as, as VASPs. Um, the feedback is that the process to become registered is in-depth. Um, despite the anti-money laundering registration, uh, not being an authorization or a, or a license application. Part of this, no doubt, is, is the quality of applications that the central bank is being receiving. And in fact, the central bank has flagged that in the vast majority of applications, there has been a lack of understanding and compliance with key anti-money laundering obligations, in, a, in addition to significant control weaknesses. So we do anticipate that there will be more VASP registered in, in due course, but certainly they've been trickling through rather than a deluge at the moment. The next development, I think, will be in the crypto asset space, which will be relevant here, will be the implementation of the markets and crypto assets regulation. That'll provide for the regulation of crypto asset service providers. And these firms will also be within the AML tent under the new proposed AML regulation. So the types of activities um, that this will capture really is inspired by the types of activities that's captured by MIFID. So things like operating a trading flat platform in relation to crypto assets, custody, exchange, execution of orders, placing, providing transfer services, and also things like providing advice on crypto assets or providing portfolio management. So certainly activities that we'd be familiar with more in the financial uh, instruments sector. Certain issuers will also be within the regulatory net and have to become authorized, um, particularly in relation to certain types of stable coins. And then, of course, they will be in the anti-money laundering net too. So while the text of the regulation isn't absolutely finalized, it's very close at the moment. And as well as there being the increased scope for anti-money laundering compliance and firms within, within the net, I, I think something I would stress is that we see this as a big opportunity for Ireland, the implementation of this regulation and the licensing requirement that it will bring for these providers represents another sector that potentially Ireland could um, become a 
space for across across Europe becoming authorized under under the markets and crypto assets regulation will bring with it an EU passport. And as we've seen with other financial services um, regimes, which include a passport, Ireland can become quite an attractive base for that. I think Shane might touch on some of the experiences for some other firms. Yeah, I mean the 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 tent is is certainly getting bigger and bigger all the time. Um, an, another category of firm that that are still relatively new to to, to this area is is what we refer to as Schedule Two firms. So, for those not familiar with that term, it's firms that are not licensed by by the CBI, but because of their activities, for example, commercial lending or financial leasing, they're required to register with the CBI purely for AML supervision purposes. And a good example of that would be some of the aircraft leasing platforms based in Ireland that are that engage in, in financial leasing of aircraft. Um, the reality in a lot of those scenarios for Schedule Two firms is that the activity is is actually conducted through a special purpose vehicle. It doesn't have any employees. It doesn't have any infrastructure of its own. So the challenge there is is to put together a functional AML framework that ultimately relies quite a bit on outsourcing. So that might be within a, a group um, or, or using a third party uh, service provider, but also ensuring that the directors of that vehicle can properly oversee compliance. So training becomes very important. Also having meaningful reporting to the board becomes very important. The other challenge with the Schedule 2 regime concerns scope. So as I mentioned, commercial lending is one of the triggers, but the precise meaning of that term isn't defined. So you have a situation where one firm will take quite a cautious interpretation and, and will go and register with CBI, whereas another firm carrying out the exact same type of activity will take a contrary view and, and won't register. So you've not got a level playing field. And, and the other aspect, which is, is a bit of an unknown for, for firms in, in this space, Schedule 2 firms at present, is, is where, where the firm actually sits on CBI's risk assessment ratings. And the importance of those ratings is that it dictates the level of supervisory engagement the firm should expect from the CBI. That could be anywhere from annual engagement to more you know, spot checking or some might say unpredictable level of engagement or random. But, but there is a scale and that's how the CBI you know, um, allocate their supervisory resources. You, know, you could argue it shouldn't really matter. The firm should be meeting all their AML obligations regardless of whether CBI are looking over their shoulder and that is true, but in practice, the, the fear of, of a visit from the CBI tends to people keep people engaged on, on, on AML and on any regulatory issue, and, and it always drives higher standards of compliance. So, so knowing where those firms sit uh, within that risk, those risk ratings would be helpful, and I'm sure we'll probably get there over time. Thanks, Shane. And looking to the future, what are the major milestones that our listeners should look out for on the horizon? Yeah, so I mean, as as with a lot of financial services regulation, all eyes really are on on Brussels in terms of upcoming developments. If we rewind the clock a few years, there was a wave of AML controversies in 2017, 18, and 19, which led the European Commission to conclude that more was needed to be done in terms of consistency of AML rules across the EU and also as regards AML supervision and enforcement. So that led the European Commission to publish an, an action plan in 2020, which was followed the following year by concrete legislative proposals. And the proposal, which will probably end up being the most significant in the longer term, 
was the idea of creating an EU level AML authority or AML regulator as a means of ensuring greater consistency of supervision across Europe. As regards the actual rules themselves, the Commission identified that there was too much national discretion in the implementation of directives that was leading to fragmentation across Europe. So they proposed to take certain key elements from the fourth and fifth directives, such as customer due diligence, beneficial ownership requirements, and to deal with them in a more granular fashion than they had been dealt with previously, and also in a directly effective regulation. So it removes the, that the discretionary element for, for, for member states in terms of implementation. But this being AML, they, they couldn't resist the lure of another directive. So they propose a sixth AML directive, which will largely deal with provisions that are not considered appropriate for regulation and, and that require national transposition. So rules concerning national supervisors, financial intelligence units in, in member states. And of these three developments, so the, the essentially be, being referred to as, as the single rule book, particularly the regulation and the directive, it would appear that most of the discussion and focus to date in Europe has been on the new AML authority, where it should be located, how it should function, and who it should supervise. In terms of timing, we're probably at least one to two years out before these, these reforms are, are, are fully implemented. But there is one final element of the, of the reform package worth mentioning um, at this point, which is the revision of the 2015 Regulation on Transfer of Funds, also known as the Wire Transfer Regulation, that's being amended to ensure that crypto transfers involving EU-supervised crypto asset service providers can always be traced, that those transfers can be traced. This is, is sometimes here referred to as the FATF travel rule as well. Thanks, Shane. Um, just picking up on something that you mentioned there, um, the AML authority, uh, what sort of impact might we see with the introduction of the AML authority as regards to supervision of firms? Yeah, so it, it's been referred to as a, as a partial centralization of AML supervision, whereby the new AML authority will have both direct and indirect supervisory powers. And for anyone familiar with the EU's single supervisory mechanism for banking supervision, this should sound a bit familiar. Essentially, the AML, AMLA or AMLA, AML authority would directly supervise a limited number of obliged entities. So these would be firms that are active in a certain proportion of member states and categorized in the highest AML risk category by their national supervisors. So in, in a minimum sort of number of, of member states. So there's going to be qualifying criteria the details of which are still being hammered out. Um, but a, a, a pool or population of firms will be selected for super, direct supervision by AMLA. The selection of those firms would be reviewed every three years. And a firm that isn't in that sort of initial selection could still find itself subject to AMLA supervision if there's indications that it is systematically failing to meet applicable AML requirements. So essentially, AMLA could step in and take over supervision of a firm that wasn't initially selected via the criteria. But in practice, supervision of qualifying firms will be carried out by joint supervisory teams led by staff of AMLA, but also including staff from the national uh, relevant national supervisors. For direct supervision, AMLA will have powers to adopt binding decisions in relation to firms and impose administrative sanctions on firms. So, you know, they'll be able to do what the CBI could do in relation to, to, to a firm here in Ireland. They can do that at a European level as well. 
for all other firms then that are not directly supervised, supervision will remain primarily at national level with the national supervisors retaining full responsibility and accountability for those firms. But we're told that the AMLA will coordinate national supervisors and help them increase their effectiveness in enforcing the single rule book, ensure homogenous and high quality supervisory standards. So they will have powers to direct the national supervisors to, to take action. And, and in that respect, we expect that they'll be pretty influential in terms of setting supervisory standards and expectations around, around Europe. And then finally, AMLA will also have a role in relation to exchange of information and cooperation between the national financial intelligence units. They're going to develop templates, binding templates and standards for reporting of, of suspicious transactions from obliged entities to the FIU. So, you know, quite a bit on their plate, really, that this new authority. Thanks, Shane. And is the single rule book something to be welcomed by industry? Yeah, well, there may well be some pain initially, particularly in scenarios where existing rules are clarified in, in ways that, that don't align exactly with the existing domestic requirements or where the rules become more granular and leave less room for discretion to be exercised. However, that sort of clarification of the rules, the granularity, it should lead to more certainty for firms when designing their policies and procedures and also should alleviate some of the complexity where firms are operating in multiple EU jurisdictions and having to deal with, you know, similar but maybe slightly nuanced rules as, as they move um, across border. So I'd say the single rule book should probably receive a cautious welcome at this point. But as ever, the devil will be in the detail. Discussions on the rule book are ongoing. Um, and due to Brexit, we lost one of our best allies at the negotiating table in terms of ensuring that EU regulation properly takes into account a common law system. Um, there's an increased risk, and, and this is across the board, there's increased risk going forward that elements find their way into EU legislation that don't translate properly into an Irish context. And I think where we'd see this, for example, in the AML space is in relation to trust. Trust as a concept in Ireland is very different. It's not a concept that a lot of civil law countries quite grasp. Um, and so, you know, if they set rules in relation to that, they may not be, you know, familiar with what they're trying to, to regulate. So maybe some speed bumps along the way, but overall clarification and streamlining should be of assistance, particularly in areas like beneficial ownership. And also in relation to the listing of countries as having deficiencies in their AML frameworks, there's going to be, as a result of the rule book, closer alignment between the EU and, and the FATF, FATF, as regards listing of countries. In a nutshell, if a country is listed by the FATF, it'll also be listed by the EU. And there's going to be two lists in the EU, a black list and a grey list, which reflect FATF listings. So essentially, the Commission won't be required, as they currently are, to redo the identification process that FATF have already performed. So it should bring just a bit more certainty to, okay, if FATF, you know, designated countries high risk or having deficiencies, the EU will follow suit, which, you know, I think that certainty should be welcomed. Thanks, Shane. And you mentioned their beneficial ownership requirements. Could you elaborate uh, a bit on the streamlining of those requirements? Yes. So firstly, we expect to see clarification that when it comes to applying beneficial ownership tests, that both the ownership and control limbs should be analysed by firms to identify all beneficial owners. Unfortunately, what, what does tend to happen sometimes in practice is that firms tend to focus on the ownership test 
and the relevant threshold. So looking for someone who has more than 25% of shares in, in a corporate entity, for example, and the control element of the test tends sometimes to be overlooked. So I, I think this clarification in a regulation that both limbs of the test should be considered, that should bring greater certainty and consistency to the process if everyone is clear on, on the tests. Another important aspect of, of the expected clarifications is that there will be more guidance on rules relating to multi-layered ownership and control structures. And in practice, this is often where a lot of the head scratching occurs, where you've got just complex layer of layers of ownership and maybe different forms. You could have a corporate with a trust and a partnership all in the one in the one ultimate structure. There's limited guidance out there unless you really know where to look currently. So I think clarifying these elements in, in, in the rule book should be of benefit. And just a couple of other developments to mention while we're on the topic of beneficial ownership. Late last year, the ECJ ruled that the provision in the current EU AML directive, whereby information of beneficial ownership is accessible in all cases to any member of the general public, they ruled that that was invalid and that essentially it was an excessive infringement of, of certain fundamental rights, particularly the right to respect for private life and to the protection of personal data. So almost overnight since that decision was published, public access to central beneficial ownership registers was restricted across Europe and in Ireland. And then finally, we have Boris, not the, the ex-UK PM, but, but instead the beneficial ownership registers interconnection system. So this is the, the system that's in the process of being established and will ultimately connect the beneficial ownership registers of all EU countries, as well as Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway. So it'll be possible for parties that do have access rights, such as obliged entities, to search for a company, to search for a trust or other legal arrangement through a single portal and access information on, the, on its beneficial owners. And that information is pulled from, from all of the national registers around Europe. So for anyone doing due diligence, when this is fully up and running, it should be helpful, particularly if you're dealing with a, a cross-border client or a client with the beneficial owner outside of Ireland. Thanks, Shane. And we obviously have a number of central beneficial ownership registers operating here. Could you talk a bit more about what has been the experience to date on those? Yes, yeah, so we, we, we've got three registers operating here in Ireland. One for, for corporates operated by the RBO, which is um, essentially an offshoot of the company's registration office. One for trusts operated by the revenue commissioners, and then a third operated by the CBI in relation to ICAVs, credit unions. And essentially, I mean, registers are all fully operational up and running and have been for a little while now. The experience with them, I think it's fair to say, was largely collaborative in terms of the bodies operating the registers were willing to communicate and engage with firms that were going to be impacted by these registers to troubleshoot, to develop FAQs, which was very helpful. That was certainly my experience when I was part of the industry working group that was working with the re revenue trust register but but that's not to say that anyone who actually uses the registers and makes filings have not met with challenges there can be challenges in even identifying structures that are in scope particularly in the trust space challenges as i mentioned earlier sometimes in, in carrying out beneficial ownership an analysis particularly in complex si situations and also just operational constraints in terms of people maybe looking to make bulk returns to, to these registers and then there's also, um, which is an interesting one, in relation to the trust register, there's a cross-jurisdictional element. So some trusts, non-Irish trusts, essentially, 
can find themselves having to make filings to the Irish Register if they have a sufficient nexus with a connection with Ireland. I think also in terms of the actual content of the registers, I suspect that there may be quality control issues, certainly, and, and it's, it's no reflection on any of the parties operating those registers, but that's been the experience in all the other countries that have implemented these registers before. And it's because it is complex and applying the tests it can be difficult in practice and there's not probably still enough consistency. And that's where the single rule book should really help rectify some of those issues and make sure that, you know, people are really clear on how to run those assessments. So the quality of the data in those registers over time should really improve. Thanks, Shane. We're coming to the end now of, of our discussion. And if Niall, can we talk a bit now about enforcement? Can you give our listeners a flavour of the trends from recent local or international cases or decisions? Yeah, of course. So looking at Ireland first, since the beginning of 2013, which is which is 10 years ago now, 10 of the 91 settlement agreements entered into by the central bank under its administrative sanctions regime have related to anti-money laundering compliance. So so quite a quite a large proportion of the overall number of enforcement cases. But the high watermark in terms of those settlement agreements was really in 2016 and 2017 when when six of the 10 AML uh, settlement agreements were actually entered into. Also during that period, the three largest fines to date issued by the central bank in relation to anti-money laundering took place, so the, the largest being around 3.3 million. For those cases, those three most significant cases in that time period, outsourcing was a key theme, as you would expect. Risk assessments was a key theme. And you know, Shane's, Shane's talked about the evolution there as well. And then suspicious transaction reporting without delay uh, was another common common theme in those kind of key cases. Since then, there's been there's been less settlement agreements issued in relation to anti-money laundering in Ireland. There was one recently in, in 2022. And the key theme there was in relation to transaction monitoring failings. And in particular, actually, a failure to adjust group transaction monitoring approaches to, to the local market and to the local branch. But I think really, when you talk about the high watermark, when you talk about the um, significant number of cases in 2016, 17, and only a couple since then, I think really the trend in Ireland is the drop-off in AML related settlement agreements and, uh, and enforcement cases over the, over, over the last few years. This doesn't, I think, reflect a change in the importance in the area for the central bank. We see it so significant in terms of you know, the licensing applications that we do and, uh, and other supervisory actions, but certainly a trend has been that there hasn't been as many published settlement agreements in this area in Ireland. Globally, the situation is a bit different. So recently, the Financial Times reported that banks and other financial institutions were fined almost 5 billion US dollars for AML infractions and sanctions infractions last year alone, which is really significant numbers. There have been some significant cases in the last 12 months in Europe within that global figure. So, for example, a large UK retail bank was fined around 265 million sterling, although the judge in that case found that the bank was in no way complicit in relation to the money laundering which had taken place and related to that issue, the bank was functionally vital. So without the bank and without the bank's failures, the money could not have been laundered. You know, it's a really key, key finding. There was also a Spanish bank in the UK was fined um, over 100 million sterling 
um, as a result of transaction monitoring, so similar to the recent case in, in terms of the underlying issue there. We've also seen in Europe some, some quite robust public statements. So, for example, a, a German bank has been told publicly by Bafin that it may be fined if it fails to address certain AML issues by mid-2023. Um, so certainly loads in the enforcement space in a global and in a European context. So I think looking at the trends there, there are a lot of cases. So, so I think the kind of key trend is there's a lot of enforcement action happening globally. The, the fines are of a significant size. You can see that even just with the UK ones. And where alleged money laundering has taken place, really, you know, regulators are keen to enforce or, or keen to highlight the importance of banks and other financial institutions in the fight against that activity. So their failures can lead to money laundering. Thanks, Niall. And finally, Shane and Niall, any final developments, hot topics, talking points that you'd like to bring to our listeners' attention? Yeah, so there's there's obviously a lot going on in this space and we've covered a lot of topics already, but I think um, it would be remiss on a, on a podcast about anti-money laundering to not mention financial sanctions, which is obviously a related topic in terms of financial crime and has been a top agenda item for the last 12 months in light of the measures in introduced in response to the Russian invasion of U Ukraine. The initial focus, uh, whenever the new sanctions were introduced, was a focus to identify potential exposures, to come up with swift plans to address any, any, any issues that firms had in terms of those exposures. However, we can anticipate that the sanctions story will continue to run. We expect, you know, periodically new measures to be in introduced, but also resolving legacy issues could take some time. So firms have maybe frozen assets and at some point, a lot of those issues will need to be sort of un unwound and, and ultimately dealt with. We also touched on tech in terms of the service providers and I'm sure you understand what they actually do. But equally, you know, it is worth pointing out that tech developments continue at pace. There's obviously been a lot of talk about artificial intelligence and also the potential for blockchain to provide some solutions or to provide um, some level of integrity in terms of data holding. Um, so it'll be interesting to follow, I think, whether there'll be any reg tech solutions that come off the back of, you know, blockchain, which has obviously been a key issue for a while, but also artificial intelligence, which is something that's been increasingly spoken about. We've also found de-risking to, to be a hot topic on an ongoing basis, really. And we've seen it in the context of banks, perhaps de-risking payments or e-money firms, and it being difficult for those firms to open accounts. There's also a concern for vulnerable customers and for non-for-profits being able to bank and get onto the banking system. In respect to the latter issue, the, the European Banking Authority is currently consulting on new guidelines with the aim of ensuring customers, especially the, the most vulnerable, are, are not denied access to financial services without a valid reason. But also there is going to be some movement, I think, on the on the payments and e-money firm side, because the EBA has flagged that the de-risking of those institutions will be addressed through European Commission's with forthcoming review of PSD2. Yeah, and just a few final call-outs for me as well. Um, so in, in January, just gone, the Minister for Justice issued guidelines under Section 3712 of CGA 2010, clarifying functions in the state, 
that may be considered to be prominent public functions for the purposes of identifying PEPs or politically exposed persons. So you know, I think people are still probably digesting those a, a little bit, but you know, should, should in theory be, be helpful in terms of PEP identification. Another area where we've seen renewed focus nationally is in the area of information exchange and sharing of information between public and private sectors as regards money laundering in terms of financing cases, trends and typologies. So there's been some good debate there and discussion. And it's a case of watch this space as to what might come out of those discussions, um, which leads me into my next point, which is the ever-present tension between AML, which ultimately is still all about knowing your customer and gathering information. And then on the other hand, data privacy, where one of the key principles is data minimization. This always puts firms in a difficult position trying to serve both masters, but there are ways of managing that, such as conducting a data privacy impact assessment before implementing a new a new AML system or process. And another topic we could probably dedicate a whole podcast to is the shift in emphasis away from onboarding KYC as being the key control and more and more of a focus now on ongoing screening and ongoing monitoring. Both are important, obviously, but as the speed of commerce increases, customers expect to be able to open accounts and to obtain services quickly, you know, same day, if not same hour or same minute. And they don't want to have to send in documents and wait for those to be processed. So firms are, will have to be clever as to how they can provide a customer-friendly service without compromising compliance with AML rules. And there's probably still you know, a way to go on that journey. And then a very, very final one for me is that one thing that's quite obvious to us in advising clients in different sectors is that each sector has its own quirks, it has its own challenges when it comes to AML. The EBA recognized that in their risk factor guidelines. They've included general guidelines for all firms, but then sectoral risk considerations for different sectors, such as investment funds and crowdfunding platforms. So I think we should expect to see, even with the new rule book, we should expect to see different sectors continue to push for a sectoral focus because this is a complex area and the rules don't always neatly translate across every, every sector. Thanks, Shane. And Shane, if that's an offer to come on to the compliance files again to talk about ongoing screening, we might we, we might get back to you on that. So um, <laughs> thanks for that offer. Um, well, thanks to Shane and Niall for that very interesting and really wide ranging um, discussion on um, AML. We've reflected on governance developments and the role of the MLRO, the role of outsourcing in AML risk management, uh, the business risk assessment, the challenges in that, the upcoming changes, the single rule book, the new authority enforcement and what to take away from those, some of our hot topics in it. So a really rich agenda there um, that was addressed by Shane and Niall. And, and so thank you very much on behalf of our listeners. So uh, it just remains for me to say thank you also to listeners of this Compliance Files podcast, which was brought to you by the Compliance Institute. I do hope that you find the podcast interesting and useful, and we would be very grateful if you would review or rate this podcast. And until the next episode, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.